Jennifer Chinch, you were quite rightly calling out Patrick Bamford on the commentary of the, the Leeds game. What was he doing? Because quite a few people mentioned it to us on Twitter. Well, on the pitch, apart from scoring, he wasn't doing much because he was dragged off at half-time. Uh, so he'd been substituted by Marcelo Bielsa, rightly so, because Leeds went on and won the game. But there was a drinks break halfway through the second half, and he's on his phone. He's on his phone. So he sat in the stands because of social distancing, but he's actually on his phone. And all I said, we had Steve McLaren on the gantry with us. Well. I said to Steve, actually ducked the question brilliantly. But I just said, as a coach, if you turn around and saw someone who's clearly been involved in the game, whether you've taken him off or not, or whether you're a sub waiting to go on, you can't be using your mobile phone when the game is going on. Surely you should be supporting your teammates. So I just said, I'm not having that. That's the first time I've ever seen someone who's come off, obviously still got their kit on, put a, tra- a tracksuit top on, some ice on his knee because he was maybe trying to pretend he'd been injured and that's why he came <laughs> off. He wasn't. Um, so actually, I just said, I'm not having that. The first time I'd ever seen it and I was just a little bit gobsmacked by it, Stephen. I'd like to say, Chinch, that I'm watching everything you do, but there's so much football at the moment that Leeds, Fulham did fall through the cracks, I'm afraid. Okay. But, but this was discovered because friend of the pod from rival pod, Max Rushton, tweeted that Andy Hunchcliffe I think, furious with Bamford for being on his phone. To which, of course, we have now been asked whether we will be changing your nickname from Chinch to Chunch and whether tying in with the set-piece menu theme of the pod, whether brunch should now become Chunch. So he, 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 mis- he didn't purposely misspell my name. He just didn't actually know what I'm called. Well, I is next to you on the computer, were he to be typing using the QWERTY, which I imagine yeah. it would be. Yeah. yeah it, it, it sounds like I'm a bit of a, got a bit of a Quasimodo going on there. <laughs> if I'm hunched, I don't want that. Dude, I'm bad enough as it is. You know, I'm bad, I, look as, I look as if I fell off a horse and landed on my face as it is. I don't want to be called hunchy, do I? Because that takes it to a whole new level. But you are called hinchy by everyone at Sky, aren't you? I certainly, amongst other things, yes. Which, which is a shame because that isn't your nickname, because Chinch is your nickname. Let's get that straight uh, for a start. I had another nickname when I was uh, Steve Redmond, my old Man City teammate, when we from our early, early days, uh, called me Shaggy. I don't know, I must have mentioned this. Yes, I must have done the story, yeah. That, I have told you this. It's because yeah. I had, like, I've always had a little bit of a beard going on, a little bit of stubble going on. I had kind of a, a wispy kind of beardy thing when I was 16, 17, and I looked a bit like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. So that's, he called me Shaggy. Lucky that that didn't stick. And I've kind of, what I've done, I like... I like Hinchy, so I force that on people. Whenever I send text to people, I always put Hinchy on them because I want to be called that because I think that's acceptable rather than Andy. I'd, I'd, just, I'd rather have a nickname, but one that I like, not that other people choose. I tried the tactic at Burnley last week because all the Sky people, as you say, Rory, call him Hinchy. Yeah. I'm just looking at them as though I've no idea who you're talking about. Good. That person doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. A lot Did. of them at Sky do it because I think they're embarrassed. The, the chinch, clearly they know it's all about the chin. And I, I don't feel that they want to draw. It's obvious. It's clearly obvious to everybody that my facial impediment. So they, <laughs> a lot of them like to call me Hinchy because if they call me chinch, it's as if they're rubbing salt into the wounds, which they would be. They might not know they had permission to call you chinch. They might think it's a derogatory nickname when in fact it's affectionate. Did they Steve... do have to write to me for, uh, for official yeah, guidance permission. on whether yeah. they can or can't actually call me uh, chinch. There's only my, my real true, yeah, true friends that I allow to, to call me chinch. Did Steve Rodmond, uh, if we're getting people's names wrong, <laughs> did Steve Rodmond call you shaggy because you had an unruly dog and lived in a van? 
no, it was the definitely, definitely the wispy beard. So it wasn't rooting out uh, some sort of criminal who usually had a disguise on that you would reveal at some point in the final act of your story. No, no, hang on. You're just on... confused by the Scooby-Doo connection here. I just looked like a character from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Nothing to do with how Shaggy lived his life. I didn't have a great Dane that could talk to me. I didn't solve relatively simple mysteries <laughs> in the mystery machine. I had a wispy beard. This is Set Beast Many, the podcast where four friends still in kind of lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith. If there's something strange, Stephen Wyeth in the neighbourhood. Who are you going to call? Andy Hunchcliffe. The food is <laughs> provided by said Hinchy Chinch Chunch. Um, you're, you're half eating it, Chinch. Would you like to show it for mm. the camera for us four and also perhaps describe the wonderful creation that you've provided not only for yourself, but also for us to salivate over? I say I provided. Clearly, I've not made this. Nikki has made this. Uh, it's a jumbo fish fingers, two jumbo fish fingers in a wholemeal wrap, fresh tartar sauce, oh. homegrown, charred and rocket. It is absolutely delightful. That's as good a lunch as I've had for several years. But it sounds like you've taken the ingredients of an adult's sandwich and added fish fingers to it, which is <laughs> clearly not the ingredients of an adult mm. sandwich. Steve, do you not like a fish finger sandwich? It just seems like a strange thing for a man in his 50s to be eating for lunch. It's very gastro pub, though, isn't it? So It's very tasty as well, to be honest. Thank you, Chinch. Would you mind answering this question as you uh, take a hearty mouthful of your food? Do you know what we're talking about today? It's got to be Liverpool, hasn't it? Well, kind of. We are talking about desire no not the third track on the u2 album rattle and hum but whether wanting it really makes a difference rory smith the chief soccer correspondent of the new york times writes thus liverpool's premier league title is the product of good data and good decisions end quote but how much of a part did desire play not the first uk number one a grammy award-winning effort of said irish rockers but both the fire within the team and the fanaticism of the cop and is it much of a motivator for players that is Desire, the now, not the Bo Diddley beat-based 1988 effort from U2. That is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, of course, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Also, two requests. Please subscribe to our new YouTube channel. And if you wouldn't mind, uh, we'd really appreciate a few five-star reviews on iTunes. If you happen to get a moment, we'd very much appreciate it. Uh, Elizabeth Brunninger has emailed this. Dear Andy, Hugh, Rory, and Stephen. I really enjoy the podcast. That said, I'd now like to come straight to the point. Cling film. In the last episode, Rory honoured us, the SPM listeners, by confiding to us his greatest weakness and greatest enemy. I applaud Rory for taking this courageous but necessary step. Our weaknesses and fears lose their power when we share them with trustworthy friends and podcast listeners. If, however, this speaking out has not robbed Kling Film of all of its evil powers, I have a solution which I believe will rid Rory of this terrible scourge once and for all beeswax wraps they come in delightful colors and patterns to suit all moods and are very sympathetic docile creations they have no teeth don't hide in boxes and do not need to be tamed with scissors beeswax wraps will literally bend to your will these attractive and flexible little things will keep your food fresh in the fridge and they won't mind being put up to work again and again unlike the eternally youthful cling film however beeswax wraps will show signs of aging and the hard work and pressure can cause them to crack at this point they should be entrusted to the landfill. Although it might be added that, while less attractive than cling film, they still maintain their serene personality and will decompose with grace. They take no interest in strangling unsuspecting fish. 
Of course, Rory's honesty may well have already disarmed Kling Film sufficiently to make it the Kling Film of use to him, in which case it would be pointless to call in the beeswax wraps. Whether he has now become master of the Kling Film or not, I wish Rory the best of luck in his future food wrapping endeavours. Best wishes, Elizabeth. P.S. Unfortunately, I don't have a solution for Andy's incompetence with pita bread. Nobody does. That's a really strange sponsor read, isn't it? Saving <laughs> firms to get that kind of exposure. Do we know where, where that email has, has originated from? Elizabeth does not say. Um, I don't, I've never seen a beeswax wrap in Britain. Maybe it's a, it's a foreign thing. Or maybe, um, I've, maybe I'm not in, going into the right shops. But she said it's not as attractive as cling, cling film. It's transparent. There is nothing... It's like saying water's attractive. It isn't really, is it? Cling film's just see-through. It's just there's nothing it, to it. There's nothing. But a beeswax wrap. Sounds, sounds glamorous. That looks like it's got mm. a bit about it. Uh, Rory, you did mention last week when you introduced your perils with cling film that it was one of two great weaknesses. And then we never want to, went on to ask you about the second great weakness. Can you please enlighten us? I think you know it, don't you? I can't read clock faces. You only go digital. I just can't read clock faces. I've got a phone. Why, why would I need to... Like the, the rest of the world has caught up to me. Like having clocks with hands and stuff is now a complete waste of everybody's time. Everyone's got a phone. Check the time on your phone. Yeah, but when you're at school, you must have done how to tell time on the clock. You didn't had, do it. What school did you go to? Just had just had friends to tell me what time it was. <laughs> so this fancy education you had, Rory, they basically skipped over the basics and went straight to classics and ancient <laughs> language. Yes, just you, I think, I think if, if you've read Ovid, you know that time is a construct anyway. So who cares? No, I'm 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 hamming it up slightly. The I can read them, but it it, it takes me ages. So like Kate will look at a clock face. And she'll be like, oh, it's 10 past seven. Whereas I have to be like, right, so the, which, one, which hand is it? Is it the little hand or the big hand that I want? Right, the little hand first. That's the hours, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The little hand, the big hand is there. Does that mean it's 10? And then eventually I get, I get to it, but it, it takes such a long time that I, to all intents and purposes, I can't, read, I can't instantaneously read clock faces. Next time we see each other, I'm going to be checking your footwear because now I'm starting to think you can't tie shoelaces either. And all of your shoes have got Velcro. <laughs> I, I can confirm that I'm a big believer in Velcro or just not tying my shoelaces up. Um, I like your assertion that you posited earlier that essentially reading clock faces and having friends were mutually exclusive things. Yes, they one are. One or the other. If you, if you can do it as a kid, you've got no mates. Thank you to Elizabeth. Uh, let us know where you are from and where we can get beeswax wraps and then let us know if they can pay us money for mentioning their name again. Richard Parfit was an SPM Live It's Not Live or an emails in response to a message from, you remember, Baz Koibasi last week. Hi folks, firstly, a belated thank you for letting me be involved in the recent live shows. I'm even using the experience of taking part to inform my efforts to organise Zoom events in my own job in case you wanted evidence of the wider economic benefits of your work. Wider benefits, yes, Richard, economic benefits, no. I agreed strongly with the email that you read out last week about how the Premier League's appeal is in part a result of the number of teams who are able to compete. And I wondered if this had an impact on players as well. Let me explain, he says. Let's say I'm a trophy-hungry player looking at different clubs across Europe who all want to sign me. If a French club is interested in me, I pretty much have to sign for PSG to have a hope. If German, it's Bayern. In Italy, there are a lot of historic clubs, but Juve have had a monopoly on success for a while. In Spain, there are definitely two clubs, maybe three, but in England, arguably, I could sign a four-year contract with any one of six clubs and have a realistic hope of winning the league inside those four years. Even if we say that's not true with Arsenal and Spurs at the moment, that still leaves four. This is all assuming I don't just look at the salary I'm being offered, but I'd argue that there are probably over 100 players who think they could get a Premier League medal at their current club 
And I'm not sure another major league can say that. Keep up the good work. If you need me, I'll be fending off any angry Dortmund and Monaco fans. That's from Richard. Yeah, agree completely. That's a great point. Except that I wonder if it, um, it, it, it has a, a, a consequence that isn't necessarily intended in that it, it spreads the talent out a bit more. Even if you look at the amount of money the Premier League has, the amount of glamour it has, the number of big teams it has, the number of teams that are sort of competitive in Europe, that, that it's, it's the two Spanish teams, Bayern and to an extent Juve, that are always, are always at the, the business end of the Champions League. And it's because the talent is spread quite thinly in England at the very top because there are four, four, five, six teams who can, who can call on it. Next are two emails from two Buffaloes about roughly the same thing and prompted by SPM 184 about whether it's the football we missed during the pandemic or perhaps more of the window dressing. First from John Wood. Nice to have you back on the show, John. Hello all. One of the few live action spectacles that has continued during the lockdown period, apart from the Belarusian Premier League, has been pro wrestling, specifically the two largest companies, WWE and AEW. To Rory's point about football not being as good as we thought without the fans creating an atmosphere, this is even more pronounced in the world of wrestling. A wrestling match can live or die on the reaction of fans to the point that uh, where WWE have had to use some of their own developmental talent as an audience in order to generate some kind of atmosphere. The product has suffered considerably with a lack of fans as it is much more difficult to react to something when you don't have the fans to cheer a good guy or baby face as known in wrestling parlance making a comeback against the evil villain or a chinch. A hot audience can turn what would otherwise be a drab match where two people pretend to hit each other into a spectacular struggle between good and evil or an engrossing title contest between two evenly matched wrestlers. Having tried to watch some Bundesliga, I had the same feelings of not being engaged when watching matches. I could appreciate the skill involved and some great football, but when you don't have the crowd there, it really takes away from what makes live sports and football in particular special. It becomes more about appreciating talent rather than being engaged emotionally. All the best from John. P.S. Ravishing Rick Rude's finishing manoeuvre that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago was called The Rude Awakening. Mm. And this, to provide a nice double bill, is from Buffalo Mark Cole, who says this, listening to the discussion of whether Roy Keane is performing as Roy Keane reminded me of that universal comparative 1980s pro wrestling. It is said in the business that the best characters are people being themselves but turned up to 11. A textbook example is someone mentioned a few episodes ago. Minnesotan Richard Rood, spelt R-O-O-D, floundered by starting off by being a mild-mannered good guy. Luckily for his career, a promoter told him to be more like himself and ravishing Rick Rood was born. Is angry Irish pundit Roy Keane just Roy, as the song says, accentuating the positive, or accentuating at least his dominant personality traits. This theory also works for known wrestling fan Jose Mourinho. Now hit the music, says Mark, doing his best Rick Rude impression. Um, so Rick Rude became a heel, who is the bad guy. Is Roy Keane a heel of the TV punditry class? Uh, you can make a case that Keane is both a face and a heel, a face being the good guy in wrestling, and at the risk of making Steve roll his eyes and <laughs> a withering stare. It's beyond absurd that we are even discussing this. This no, no, is no. supposed to be a podcast about a competitive sport, and for the second time in three weeks, we have drifted towards the absurdity of wrestling. That, that is a good point. Steve makes a valid point <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a very condescending way and very curmudgeonly way very curmudgeonly way the wrestling i think i think think genuinely find wrestling really interesting and quite a lot of the time i it is the first i'm, I'm no longer i would no longer describe myself as a wrestling fan but as someone who once was i am a kind of wrestling sympathizer 
Um, I'd well, I thought you were going with simpleton there. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be brought in by the police for, to assist inquiries, but probably not charged. <laughs> and the, um, You'd be a person of interest. But I, funny enough, I think there are, wrestling's a really interesting parallel for football in, in a lot of ways, but it's also an interesting kind of prism through which to see quite a lot of sort of societal shifts. They seem to have a fun, like a, quite a deep-seated sense of which way society's going in wrestling i don't know how but they do and one thing that has definitely changed is that in the in the like the 90s when i was watching it as a kid all of the good guys were very clearly good guys they were all kind of say your prayers eat your meals all that business and the bad guys were plotting and evil and they cheated but there's been a shift now where the good guys cheat as well and it happened about probably about 20 years ago that the good guys were not were no longer naive and now the naive characters are quite often disliked and almost they're kind of meant to be faces but they, they're almost treated as heels and i think there's a degree of that within football punditry here's the here's the parallel in that keen is keen is definitely a bad guy in what he says but if you look at the crowd reaction to it he's a fan favorite yeah they che- they cheer they don't boo i think but that says that actually says quite a lot about us as people that we, we now cheer the villain and boo the hero. What do you mean by it's the, the things that he says makes him the heel or the villain? Because he slags everybody. He said he was going to punch David De Gea the other day. Yeah, that, he slags everybody that's, off. That's maybe taking it too far, Roy. But actually, you know, being critical of people who are making mistakes is clearly what he's there to do. And is it because maybe a lot of other pundits don't actually yeah. say these things? Or the way that you say it, we don't want everybody saying they're going to punch players. But you, this is the whole point of actually saying what you feel. If you feel it's correct... And you can back it up. It's, isn't, we were talking about how you say it. It's not what you're saying. If he's, mm. what he's saying is right, mm-hmm. then he's doing his job, isn't it? It's maybe how you approach getting that across to the viewer. So maybe not heroes and villains, more like bland and interesting. And, well, yeah, but, and the heel is interesting. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting that Steve has just left. The, the, <laughs> he um, just, he just doesn't, want any, doesn't want any part of this conversation whatsoever. But I think if you kind of remove the accuracy of his statements from it, the, del- what, the delivery is, what's Im- or is almost what's important. And I think that, that what Roy Keane has intuitively understood, because there's been lots of people who would have that same competitive drive as Roy Keane, who've, who've gone into punditry and become quite bland because they, they're trying to be, they're really conscious of the need to be fair and not to, not to upset anybody and all that stuff. But Keane, I think, intuitively understands that what people want, what the crowd wants from him are the rants. I think that's where the kind of, I agree with the sentiment that he that Roy Keane is is true to himself. He's just maybe turned it up a little bit, or he's not trying to. Maybe it's even that he's just not trying to contain it. But I think he knows that that's what makes him popular. That's what keeps getting him decent gigs on Sky. It keeps what it's what kind of keeps him in the conversation. So I think he he understands that he is playing to the crowd in some way. Does he feel that the the viewer expects that from him? If he is just making really good points, but nice and calmly, like everybody else does. Everyone said, well, what's happened to Roy Keane? Why isn't he really yeah. you know, sticking the knife in and saying the things that we expect from Roy Keane? So is he playing up to the role that people expect him to, yeah. to, to play? Which is really hard to sustain, actually. But if you think about the, those competing values of style and substance, which is the conversation that we had last week, the conflict is there really in Roy Keane, just to distill it down to, I imagine that he has points that he could make without the style. The substance is of value, as you said, Chinch. Mm. But if you add the style, then clearly that is something of value to those people who value style as much uh, as substance. Uh, just a couple of points uh, before we move on to our main subject today um, about crowd noise. Andrew Watts Morgan 
um, has uh, got in touch to say this about the fake crowd noise. I found myself in an odd position watching on television. It makes me pay more attention than having the silence of an empty stadium. But I also find myself worrying about how it could be used in the future. What's to stop games being moved to increasingly more ridiculous times to satisfy overseas broadcasters? If the Premier League know even if there aren't fans, they can pump in noise. And finally, Cameron Hill has two offerings. And first, this is about crowd noise. Dear non-New York Times writers and Rory, what about playing into the stadia crowd noise from different sports? Don't dismiss my suggestion until you hear me out. I would love to see the possible effects of the, on the quality of football if the players were immersed in the sounds from a polite Wimbledon crowd or the ravenous roars from a UFC main event or even the beer-soaked tones from the Ali Pali Fatal. That's darts to our international audience. Indeed, why limit it to sports? I'm sure we do all enjoy that Panto classic, He's Behind You, as yet another average centre-forward goes past Skodran Mustafi into the Arsenal box. <laughs> Keep it in mind. Anyway, stay safe. Sincerely, Cameron Hill. I'd quite like to hear them pumping the noise from Prime Minister's questions. Shame, shame, shame. Uh, Centre uh, forward bearing down on goal as <laughs> Caroline starts blasting it. Uh, any thoughts on that? Let us know, menu at gmail.com. By the way, I did say that Cameron had two things. He's very prolific when it comes to managers most likely too. So to just dip our... Uh, ourselves into that particular well. These are questions to which the answers are a manager, but cannot be Sean Dyche, Graham Potter or Nigel Pearson. So from Cameron, manager most likely to release an operatic cover album of Christmas carols with world-renowned tenor Andrea Bocelli, Mikel Arteta. Mm. Manager most likely to moonlight as a ticket inspector on a Western European train line. That's Jurgen Klopp, of course. And manager most likely to have secretly really enjoyed the BBC Three young adult series, Normal People, Frank Lampard. Not sure what Cameron's trying to say about Frank Lampard, but anyway, any managers most likely uh, to, and everything else to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I think he's saying that Frank Lampard likes a bit of soft core, and that's what he's saying. <laughs> Normal people was tremendous. Oh, so, tremendous. so is Chinch. Chinch and I've, Frank uh, Lampard together I've, in so many ways. I've not seen it, but my wife and my dad had a really weird conversation about it, so I have no intention of watching it. Oh. As long as they weren't watching it together, that's all that really no. matters. And now, how often do you hear sports people described as really wanting it? you know, really wanting it. The way it's said makes you think desire alone is enough to make you win, or if not the only thing, the thing without which you'd have no hope of success. But how important is desire? Liverpool's Premier League title win was built on all their data analysis and decision-making abilities, but would they have succeeded without the desire? The passion shared by the thousands on the cop and Klopp's megawatt smile, the enthusiasm shown by his players to press a Gagan and a Gagan, and the desperation to turn last season's nearly but not quite into, well, quite. So even in this context of a club set up for success in so many different ways, desire would appear to be important. And if it is to be so determined, how crucial will maintaining that desire be along with that good data and those good decisions. I mean, are they still going to really want it next season? So how important is desire? I, I, do, you want me to, do you want me to kick off? Well, yeah. surely long, longevity in any, any team sport, certainly in any individual sport, of course you have to have ability, you have to have the latest methods and, and training and, and kind of science behind you as well. But it's getting out of bed and, and what, it's actually not just playing on match days. It's actually the desire to train and to push yourself harder and harder. I, I went through, obviously, phases, and not, I can't equate myself to the, the very, very best that are in the Liverpool team at the moment, but I, I know for a fact that there were certain points where your, your desire or your willingness to maybe do, put in the extra work wasn't there for a period of time, and then there was other times in your career when it, and it, when it was. Desire and motivation are absolutely, you know, for human beings across the board, in terms of just going to work, you have to find a way 
to, to make it work for you. So desire is huge. I look at Liverpool and Jordan Henderson is probably the player I admire more than anybody else. Not necessarily because he's their best player, but his determination and desire to be the best and play the role that he's in the, in the team to provide for the other players as well. He kind of pulls them along. And actually, it's probably, in terms of making other players really want to, um, to, to, to perform as well, he's probably actively played a role in dragging up other players' desires as well to actually get the job done. So, yeah, I don't think much has changed. It's just the game has become more analytical and the science, of, of, of course, has changed. But to, it's, it's, it has to be in you to want to actually go to work and train and push and get physically better tactically better mentally better and you have to continue to do that day after day after day what when you get to a point where you've earned so much money or won, won so many things that you actually feel well I, I just can't do it and that starts to wane that will have an impact on on how you play and how you perform it has to do so desire and motivation i i still feel are absolutely huge you can't you can't be the very best and, and certainly for a team you can't all pull together and win things if you don't all feel very similarly when you step onto the training field and certainly on a, on a match day. Can, can you tell as a player when, when your teammates are lacking desire? Yes, because I've been through it myself and I know that I was guilty of that. And that, that's, every, I'm sure, yeah, I watch, you know, certain player, I look at the kind of the class of 92 at United and they, when they'd won everything, presumably money-wise, they'd made a, a huge amount as well. But they, the stories I heard about how they continue to push and push to be better and better and to try and maintain that success, where most people think, well, after I've run five or six titles, I've proved myself, I've earned tens of millions. You would naturally think, well, I can't do any more. I'll just ease off here because I've done everything I, I need to prove to myself and everybody else how good I am and I've won things as well. So it always amazed me how these people could continue to, and maybe you drive each other. Again, if you have a very close-knit unit, which they had there, that is helpful to have people around you who never let you kind of drop off as well. Okay. But I maybe wasn't involved, exactly. I wasn't involved in that type of kind of environment. Apart from Everton, again, when we had that real close spot, you feel that you're letting other people down if you don't play your part as well. And maybe a lot of players, a majority of players, probably need that environment to be really successful. Because on their own, I know for a fact on my own, I probably wouldn't have been able to, to push myself as much as other people made me push myself. When, when you lost your desire? What I never happened? really lost it. I just moved into another area, broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when you had moments where you felt you, you were not quite as kind of motivated as, as you had been previously, mm -hmm. was it that you were thinking, I'm not that asked about this? Or was it, is it more a subconscious thing where you just, you, you may be initially don't even realize it yourself that you're not sprinting quite as hard that you're not putting the tackle in that you're not kind of you're not making the extra run and it it takes a while for it to dawn on you that actually you've lost that that edge and you've become as edgy as, as a satsuma I, I i do feel it's pretty obvious you're lying to yourself if you, if you say well today i i did the same as when i was at my very but you you know and you're, you're trying to convince other people you're kidding them and you're kidding yourself as well everybody knows whether they've done enough a professional player, a sportsman will know whether they've done enough or not. And it, it, does, it does become, again, it has to be something that you think that isn't good enough. Yes, I had that dip or had that low. For whatever reason, it might be something at home. It might be something at work. It might be an injury that you can't. There'll be a lot of things that maybe see you. But once you start to tail, it's whether it's the, the mental, how can you turn that around? How can you appreciate it and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get back to the level of that. And that's when it probably takes coaches or people around you to help you do that. But again, I don't know, because this is just my view of playing the game, how I felt about it, what I saw, the desire and determination in probably lesser players, but they had very long, successful careers. And I felt a lot of it was down to their application. Do you all feel that 
desire? Do, 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 when you're watching games, do, do you see or watch players and think they are running through brick walls? You can see it. Okay, you played a bit of the game as well, but can you see it that there's a, there is clearly something in certain players for their motivation and desire that other players don't have? It's not just about ability and coaching and science. It is about how they feel they want to do their jobs. Is that something you see watching games as well? I think you notice it particularly when it's not there. Mm. Maybe it's not so easy from sort of a layman's point of view to notice when someone like Jordan Henderson is able to step up and give that extra few percent as a consequence of his hunger to succeed. But definitely you can see it in teams when they aren't doing enough to compete. And it's been particularly prevalent since football returned after the hiatus and behind closed doors that I've been struck by how remarkable it is that some of the teams down the bottom have not come back with that hunger to save themselves under the circumstances that you'd almost feel were favourable for a relegation fight. To, to not be playing in a stadium with the anxiety of your home support and the, the weight and the pressure that that brings down upon you. The fact that the, the bottom five clubs have only taken two points since football resumed at the, at the time of recording has laid bare just how much that has played a part in the situation that they find themselves in at the moment. I am yes, very much also, of the view that sorry, we, should, we should relegate all of them for being bad and doing <laughs> badly at football. The, but it, it is, it is <laughs> genuinely, I wouldn't, I, I'm one match day away from declaring them all pathetic. I mean, the, the, West Ham, Bournemouth, Watford, and the other one, Villa. Villa. I mean, it is, it's, a, it's genuinely abysmal what they, how they've come back. It is, it, I know this is, this is tangential. And it's it, not tangential. I think, I, it, think, you're, I is, think you're on the money. It, it is absolutely, like, series, I, I, after, I, I did watch Leeds Fulham, Chinch, yes. but mainly to, I, I really want Leeds to get promoted, not because you were doing it. And also, I didn't realise it was Steve <laughs> McLaren. I thought you'd borrowed some sort of, I thought you'd sort of got the most Yorkshire person you could find and just put him on television. It was really, it was really, I spent sort of <laughs> half an hour thinking, who the hell is that? It's a new feature for Sky. The, um, is this somebody for, regionally former, relevant. Former <laughs> England manager zone. Steve McLaren that was. Not just anyone. It was, I mean, I think, was he, I, think he greeted, I think he greeted you with an A-up. And after that, <laughs> he, just, he just lost me. If the, you hadn't um, been at home watching it, Rory, would you have thought it was you doing <laughs> voice? I thought it, it sounded like someone doing a really bad impression of a countryside Yorkshireman. And Steve McLaren's only from North Yorkshire, so he shouldn't talk like that at all. Anyway... <laughs> Um, no, I genuinely had the thought watching Leeds and Fulham. Fulham were, were dreadful, but I thought, do you know what, I'd rather, they just said, actually, do you know what, you, obviously Norwich are going to go, which is a bit of a shame, they, they at least play decent football and got some decent players. But Villa, West, West Ham, Watford and Bournemouth should all be relegated and whoever, there should be no playoffs in the championship, just promote the top five because none of those teams deserve to be anywhere near the Premier League given how bad they've been since they've since they've been promoted and I, I don't know whether that is desire or whether it's a total lack of confidence a substantial lack of ability whether it's the weirdness of the situation it's odd that like Watford have lost their seems to have lost the mojo that they were finding under Pearson that's a bit strange but then it's to be honest it's not like apart from Villa it's not like any of those teams have got particularly sort of deafening home support so anyway West Ham spend all of their time criticizing their own players so I would imagine that West Ham's players are, are really relieved the fans aren't there Watford and Bournemouth are hardly intimidating places to go. You don't get kind of Fenerbahce fans thinking, God, I hope we don't get Watford. We won't be able to cope in that, in that cauldron of Vicarage Road. <laughs> the, um, I just relegate them all. 
Yeah, Villa, Villa are the one, the only one, if you take that Norwich are um, as good as gone, Villa are the only ones who could probably feel like not having the support because I've been to Villa Park a couple of times this season and the atmosphere has been phenomenal. Mm. So I, I do feel as though they are missing that particularly. But we talked about what football would be like when it returned. And one of the things we discussed was how much those players who can do it on the training ground might feel like the shackles were off playing behind closed doors. So this was an opportunity for those strugglers to come back and have a mini sort of eight, nine game tournament where the environment, if anything, had been changed in their favour. And we've just not seen that reflected by the way they played at all. Except, except Brighton, to be fair to Brighton. Brighton have done okay. I, they were I, pretty much safe already, though. They didn't... Yeah, they, they were had, always they the least that, likely. Yeah, they'd have that yeah. ability to take stock and think, do you know what, we've probably already got enough points. The, um, I, and they played Arsenal, question... which helped. How I would question how bad all of those players are on the training ground. If this is their, if this is them playing with them with their game face on, they must be awful when they have their game faces off. Relegate, relegate them all. Just relegate them all immediately. Look at, I was going to look, look at Sheffield United. Now, there's a reason maybe Jack O'Connell's not played. It's changed actually the way that they play. Such an influential player, but their form has completely tailed off. Whether they'd, again, I'm sure Chris Wilder will say, well, it's nothing to do with that. We're still working as hard as ever trying to say. I'm not convinced. I've done a lot of their games. I'm not sure. Maybe. They are. So maybe their desire, because they've pretty much exceeded everything that everyone expected of them this season. But then you look at, say, Burnley. Why, why have Burnley stayed in the Premier League for so many consecutive seasons? And it, it isn't just about ability. They have some decent players. Mm. But I think Sean Dyche, what, what he, the players that he buys and the, the, the formation, the system that he plays, it is all about desire and willingness to, to do what I need you to do. And it isn't going to be glamorous. You're not going to have a lot of the ball. But they still. And so, what makes so what makes Burnley players play so consistently, game after game, and season after season? There has to be, there has to be the element of of huge desire and motivation, both individually and as a, a team, with with Sean driving them on as well. I, w- I wonder whether Burnley, and there's probably a little a little parallel here with Liverpool as well. Burnley have got a, with maybe one or two exceptions, basically a quite good Championship team. There's not, you know, Ben Meese will play. I really like Chris Ward. Dwight, Dwight McNeil. Dwight McNeil's really talented, although, you know, he's still relatively, relatively young. But the vast majority of those players, if they were in the championship, you wouldn't think, my God, it's kind of, it's an outrage that those players are in the championship. That's not an insult to them. I, I personally, Chinch might tell me I'm an, I'm an idiot, don't think there's a vast, like, talent difference between good championship players and good Premier League players. I think there's a difference at the absolute elite level, but yeah. in terms of talent, you can be playing for Forest or you can be playing for, for Burnley and, and yeah. you're yeah. probably about as good as each other. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether desire as we think of it is related to what Chinch mentioned about what you feel you owe to your group. The success that Burnley have had is probably mostly down to Sean Dyche's ability to foster an environment in which the, the, the individual players feel they owe their teammates their very best. And I think that's what Liverpool have, have had, is that they've, Liverpool have got excellent footballers throughout, throughout the piece. They are all, for all that's, you know, the certain players that people, that, that other fans look at and think, well, he's rubbish, he wouldn't get in our team. Jorginho Wijnaldum would be the best player at 13 Premier League teams. That he, Jorginho Wijnaldum is a pretty good footballer. That's he's, he might not be Lionel Messi, but he's a pretty good footballer. You know, Joe, a lot of people, a lot of fans don't really think Joe Gomez is a weak link. Joe Gomez starts probably for 15 Premier League football teams. And then obviously you have someone like Van Dijk or Fabinho or Salah, and they, they start for every single team. They are among the best players in the league. Um, but I think what Klopp's really good at is getting the group. He's, he's put a, a group together 
that buys into a group ethos. There was a line that he came out with in one of his interviews, which was that it might have been after the Palace game, and they, they, they were, I was at that Palace game, and Liverpool were genuinely extraordinary against Palace. It was, they helped, helped by the fact Zaha went off, but for a team that's coasting towards the championship, the, the, yeah, the desire, the, intent, the intensity was, was genuinely staggering in an empty stadium, and made more staggering by being in, in an empty stadium. But I think what Klopp said was that the boys liked doing what we asked them to do. And I think he's got a group together that, that buys into it and that holds each other to account. And I think that maybe that explains why when results turn and managers are under pressure, it seems like players aren't making an effort. And it's because the group has fractured, so they feel that they don't have to hold each other to account and they feel that they are not being held to account by each other. And, and perhaps it's convincing them that's what they want as, as part of the deal. It's not necessarily them knowing that it, inherently they had it in them all the way to, to want to do that. It's getting that man manager. And Chinch mentioned Sean Dyche. We talked about Burnley in that same way. And there are parallels, as you say, where it's about getting that group of players to feel like it is what they want. It is self-generating that desire mm. to want to do it. And you are convinced till your dying day that that's actually what you want rather than some way... Uh, of being manipulated, which is uh, a negative way of, of basically describing what man management is. But, but Liverpool's desire is how much of an important, contribut- important contributing factor. Because Steve and Chinch, I'm sure you've read Rory's excellent piece following Liverpool's title win. No, that's a no from Chinch. I'm going to go to Steve with this then, uh, where you list a load of contributing factors, all of which were, in- were incredibly important for Liverpool turning, turning around what was an ailing club into this generational success and generational used advisedly because it took them 30 years and almost half of that to realise something was wrong. So, Steve, how crucial would you say that desire is to Liverpool's success, given all the things that they are good at, and also how much they would prosper potentially without that essential relationship between Klopp and the players and, of course, that third person in that relationship... <laughs> non-sexual uh, which is the cough and the fans and how, how you get that those fans to completely buy in to everything that Klopp is doing what Rory has just been talking about I absolutely agree but many of the characteristics he's just described we could have projected upon Manchester City over the last or the over the two previous seasons where they were able to take the huge talent at their disposal and add to that the, the hunger, the desire to have success. You know, they've, they've dominated, obviously, the, the domestic trophies over, until Liverpool were, were confirmed as Premier League champions this week. And obviously what we see then is how critical it becomes when that desire goes away. Because as Rory wrote in his piece, that desire has, has contributed to that, in Liverpool's case, 30 years worth of growth towards achieving their aims and lots of different cogs in the machine have been changed to to help them fulfill that ambition and and Jurgen Klopp's arrival to pull it all together has been obviously absolutely critical Um, they've also been able to to harness you you mentioned the cop Hugh in, 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 in being able to harness the the supporters in a positive way rather than that maybe to be an albatross, as perhaps it has proved to be in recent seasons as they've come close but not quite got over the line. Whereas the consequence, and I wonder whether it's something that, again, is a little bit out of the big leagues in Europe, unique to the Premier League because of how many different teams we've seen in recent seasons win the, win the title, is that if you just lose that little bit of an edge as Manchester City have done, 
you can fall away quite dramatically by comparison to, to what Liverpool have achieved this season. And we've never seen a team in the Premier League era in England go more than three successive seasons winning the title. I don't think yet. Look at where we are with Bayern having been crowned champions for an eighth time in Germany, the long run of success that Juventus are on. The, I wonder whether that's another sort of trumpet to blow for the Premier League is that because the margins are so fine, it can be something as seemingly simple as desire that can make the difference between success and failure. It is my contention that at the beginning of the season, the way that Liverpool started, given what had happened before, and I've probably mentioned it on the pod before, that broke Manchester City. If we are to assume that both Manchester City and Liverpool have similar standards of off-the-field preparation, similar quality of playing staff, similar quality of coaching staff, then what are those fine margins, Roy, that you spoke about? And I just wonder if that start that Liverpool had, prompted by some kind of clarion call by Jurgen Klopp in pre-season to say, you start well, Manchester City will think, I don't want to have to fight them off for another whole 38 games of the Premier League season. That took everything out of us to beat Liverpool to that title last season. If we start in such a way to make them think and think about the whole season, to use a phrase that you used on a text this morning, Roy, to see that season yawning out in front of you, I think that's what broke Manchester City. And I think that is desire. And that is trying to get your players to feel the same desire as you do. Not only because of that ethereal, kind of that emotional connection, but also as a genuine marginal gain for Liverpool over Manchester City that they used tangibly and it, and it set them on the path to the title. Yeah, I think... So, well, there's, 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 a, lot, there's a lot in there, Hugh, to be fair. I'm, I'm slightly wary... We got a really nice, nice email today about how I am um, verbose, so I'm trying to be better. I'm slightly wary of saying, of using the problem with desire is like a catch all term. It's not, I don't think it applies the same to, to every squad. I think every squad, the desire is kind of, every successful squad has it, but I think that in each case it kind of comes from a different place. So at City, I would imagine the main source of hunger is wanting to to impress Guardiola and wanting to meet his standards. And that's not a criticism of City or of Guardiola or, or of anything, but I think that that's, what, that that's how Guardiola works. The play, he, hold, he holds the players to a really high standard. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with Liverpool next season because they, they've effectively maintained the same pace as City over the last two years, more or less. Um, City managed two years of it and then broke, um, or broke a little bit. Um, they're still going to finish second. Uh, whether Liverpool can do two years, more than two years, I'd be slightly sceptical. But this I think is the that point, it's really actually. hard. It's really hard to maintain that level of of application for 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 more than two years. What's interesting it depends how you think about it. Like if you think about Liverpool effectively having like a twenty five point gap on their nearest challenger, can Liverpool afford to be? 10 points worse in the expectation that City will be 15 points better? Possibly. Exactly. And that's the point that we made two seasons ago to last season is that Manchester City had it really, really easy in their 100-point season where they won the league by 19 points. Then they had it really, really hard, but they somehow in their reserves managed to get themselves over the line for Liverpool. Liverpool had that loss, but this time have had the huge victory. So they've had their two emotions reversed, if you like. Yeah. So what, what happens next season? If a challenge resurrects itself from Manchester City, how do Liverpool react to that in the yeah. same way that we had the question posed to Manchester City at the beginning of this season? But the, the other thing that I think is really important with City, just really briefly, is that if you look at, if you look at where City have lost points this season, it's against the rest of the top, like the top eight. 
So they've been beaten twice by United. They've been beaten once by Chelsea. They've been been beaten once and drawn and held by Spurs. They've lost to Wolves. Obviously, they've beaten Arsenal twice. Just who doesn't? But the <laughs> th- that to me would suggest that, that City season's been odd. They've hit such highs, and that but yet they've 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 really struggled domestically against good teams. So that suggests to me that it's not a problem of desire. It's a problem. It's a problem, to be honest, of predictability. I think and, I think the best teams have worked them out a little bit. Yeah, but there's also an element of quite a lot of the 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 times that City have come unstuck. It's been calamitous in terms yeah. of huge individual errors Chelsea is an example and that that is always possible for Manchester City and we've we've spoken about that before about how they are so highly strung that when they do kind of come off the boil they tend to be completely lukewarm and these these individual errors are a consequence of that but there is there is a sense that that is also coming about because of what we said about the mental pressure provided by Liverpool at the beginning of the season and they weren't capable of concentrating keeping their their desire or intensity levels depending on what you want to describe it as as high as they had been for the previous two seasons there's definitely a pattern to City I mean City to lose for City to lose eight games this season is actually is it's kind of gone underreported that's a lot of games to lose for Manchester City that is that's really not very good um and as you say, there's a lot. There's a, if it was one or two individual mistakes, and you know it's cost them a couple of wins here or there, fine. It happens. You can't do anything about it. I would say that there is there is now a pattern to that. I'm not 100 percent certain what that pattern says, but you you may be right. It may be that they have not been able to live with Liverpool's pace for for a second successive year. They they haven't been able to maintain that pace that you now need to win the Premier League for three years in a row. Maybe it's not possible. Which is why it'll be really interesting to see how Liverpool back it up next season, because arguably. Although they didn't win the title, although they came close two seasons ago but didn't, they've put together back-to-back title-winning seasons to all intents and purposes in terms of their performances and points on the board and the complete lack of games that they've lost. So their ability to go again for what would feel like a third time will be really quite telling next season. And obviously for Manchester City, can they regalvanise themselves? Because they've had that thing this season where Vincent Kompany leaving left a hole that they perhaps didn't realise until it was too late just how significant that gap was to fill. And, and the, the early season injury to Laporte must have impacted them very much mentally in terms of that ability to, to compete with Liverpool's desire because sudden, not, not that this gives them an excuse, but when you've got to dig so deep, those are the kind of setbacks that you that perhaps would affect you more than they might have done under other circumstances or more than they might have done a couple of years ago. Would you say that maybe even Guardiola's desire, when he probably appreciated how this season was going to go, did you get a sense that he actually realised, if I keep trying to say to my players, we have to try and maintain this, and it isn't going to have any effect on on us winning the title. We've got to to focus on other things. If, If someone like Guardiola is starting to feel it's pointless really you know hammering my players in in premier league that then clearly will because he will you know his body language that there will be something obvious to the players that well really as players we probably see that we, we can't really win that anymore it's pretty obvious now there's, there's other competitions that we have to focus on once the coach i feel starts to maybe it is it, it's understandable why some would think well guardiola's standards are so high it doesn't matter whether you're 20 points but you keep going you keep going but it, it seems to me there was a resignation there that may be filtered down to the players. But once that starts to happen in, in the Premier League environment, then to switch that off and turn on the desire for the champ, it's not that easy, even for the very, very best players. You still need something inside you driving you on, and then the ability is, is there as well. So I just wonder whether 
it was Guardiola that said, did you notice that maybe even his desire was kind of waning? He realised, being realistic, we're not going to win. So it's pointless me, me talking in the way that I would normally do in a, in a Premier League campaign. I think the strange thing about City is that their weakness comes from a, a, almost a desire or an inability to match the manager's desire and intensity and in attempting to do that, falling not just a little bit short, but having these kind of uh, crazy calamitous moments that actually more often than not over the pre pre previous two seasons happen in the Champions League. These little moments, 10 minutes, where they kind of just discombobulate. Whereas in the Premier League, this season is where it's happened because perhaps they've been able to realise very early on that what they need to do is focus on the Champions League through circumstances mm. that they would not have chosen at the beginning of the season and their their performances in the Champions League have been so much more solid and complete in the way that we have been witnessing over the course of those two seasons in the Premier League particularly towards the back end of last season when of course they kept Liverpool at bay with all those wins in a row so I think Guardiola's intensity um, and standards might have been maintained but he might also realize that in having his squad attempt to reach them and falling short it might not necessarily be as helpful to try and badger them in a, in a similar way. So perhaps, yes, his, his body language and his manner has changed, but I wonder if the, 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 the kind of the architect, the foundation for everything has, has stayed the same. They've just, they've kind of flipped it and they've realized that they've been more consistent in the Champions League. Again, circumstances not of their own, uh, not of their own choice. Is it, is it not, and maybe Chinch will be able to enlighten us, is it not, the is the switch of intensity not to do with once you know that your priority is, is, the, is the Champions League. The, it, it's not that you think I'm going to be less intense in the Premier League, but again, maybe you just don't make that extra run. Maybe it's yeah. only in the Champions yeah. League that you, you find that extra, that extra little bit that you would previously have applied in the Premier League as well. I suppose looking at you know, the most successful time I had with Everton with that FA Cup run that we had, clearly I felt, probably most of the players felt, even probably the coaching staff felt, going into quarterfinals, semifinals of the FA Cup, we... We definitely, I know I felt differently then from playing Premier League games after playing, say, a quarterfinal, semifinal of the FA Cup. Uh, we still had very high standards. Again, we, we had been changed an awful lot into thinking very differently and pushing ourselves. We were physically and mentally, we'd moved on such a great deal in the space of a, a year. So, but I still think you're absolutely right. When we played Premier League games, you tended to, yeah, you probably didn't even, yeah, you probably did know that you were doing it, but you just thought, well, actually, we're comfortable in the play. We're not going to win the play. We're not going to get relegated. We're trying to win the FA Cup, which is clearly, that, that, that's what happened. So I do feel that we approach the game in that way. I think looking at, say, Duncan Ferguson, for example, everyone used to say, you know, for the games against Man United and the really big games, he was simply unplayable. But then when we played Charlton at home in the Premier League, there was a definite change in his demeanour because he probably thought, well, not no disrespect, we're playing Charlton today and I've just played against Man United and scored a couple of goals. So I do think, again, but that, that's that he is a reflection of everybody, I feel. It's not just him that maybe you notice someone else dipping for certain games. That's why I hold my hands up and say, I, I, it did happen because you just, the juices don't flow as much for in certain games because you know that actually, yes, winning is important, but actually winning an FA Cup semi-final is more important than whether we draw or beat Charlton at home because it's really not going to hugely affect where we finish in the Premier League. Which is why um, it was pretty extraordinary what Manchester City did for the two seasons prior to this one. It's pretty extraordinary what Liverpool did last season and this. But it is still even more extraordinary to think what um, the class of 92, as Chinch mentioned, but Manchester United during the, the late 90s or mid to late 90s and then early 2000s, what they were able to do. And Stephen and I probably tell this story too much and, and, and too much on the podcast as well. But there, there was that occasion where 
United won, I think, the second of the three uh, in 2007, 2008, 2009. And Ryan Giggs told us the story on the first day of the subsequent season having won the league. Said that, that basically from the moment that they won the league the prior season, that Sir Alex Ferguson sat them down and said, right, forget about it. It's all about next season. For that, for that renewal of hunger that we speak about all the time to happen again and again and again over those years, it puts into context and puts into perspective what City and Liverpool have been able to do. But still, that appears favourable, even if the statistics weren't necessarily the same and even if the opposition wasn't nearly the same because United, as we've spoken about before, winning these, these leagues with, with points ranging from 76 to, to kind of 90 points. So it is different, yes, but to do it over and over and over and over again, that, that is something extraordinary. So Alex Ferguson, Alex Ferguson can say these things to you and of course that carries a huge amount of weight and he will crack the whip to ensure that you push and push. But it still has to come from the play because they can walk away from that meeting and think, we just won the title again and he's saying we go again they have to want to do it again. And that's, again, away from the coach, the spirit within the team and the desire within the team. And it maybe comes from three or four key individuals who do feel it that much more, but they can drag other people along with them. Because everybody probably didn't feel the same way about playing for Man United as maybe Beckham and, and Gary Neville did. But there was, they, they could pull people around them to their level of thinking and their level of desire. So it does actually move away from the coach into the dressing room again, and the power is with them. Because people can say a lot of things. It's when that first day of pre-season training, how willing are you to, to run through brick walls again? And actually, you'll think, well, haven't we just done it three times? But you see people around you saying, I'm doing this again. Are you coming? And again, with Sir Alex, if he saw a lowering of people's standards or willingness or desire to do it, he, he would get rid of them and get somebody in who would actually kind of carry, carry on, on that path that he wanted. So he was ruthless as well. So the players probably were worried about their future. If they didn't do it, but again, there's, there's only so much that a coach can say or do. It's still going to be down to that individual. And it may be other players in that group that will actually pull them alive. I think that's definitely happened at Liverpool. Just because we're maybe you know, going back a decade or 20 years, desire today still plays a huge part in whether teams are successful or not. And I think that's what the, the skill has been, not just, with United, not just with Liverpool, not just with City, not just with United. It's in, it's in recruiting players not just that fit into the team or strength, strengthen a weakness or fit into the team, the team as the, in terms of the way they play, but in terms of building a, a squad that will drive each other on. And it's interesting. Characters. That, it's characters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you listen to Klopp, quite a lot of the players that he very clearly really likes are not the ones that you think he would really like. You'd, you'd always think that the manager will, want, will, will like the best players. And obviously he... You know, Klopp loves Allison and Van Dijk and Salah and Mane and stuff and Firmino. But he really likes Henderson. He really likes Milner. And he really likes Adam Lallana. And I think part of that is because they, set, they are the characters in that dressing room who, who make sure that there is no room for error. That they take players in, people like Robertson when they join or, or Oxley Chamberlain or, or Alexander-Arnold when, when, you know, when they come up from, from, from the youth academy. And, and they kind of show them the way. They, they, it's not... Obviously, Henderson, Lalana, Milner is not an equivalent to the class of '92, but I think they have a similar kind of psychological effect, and it's it's why I think he was really keen to give Lalana the the extended contract. I wouldn't be surprised even in an empty stadium to, to see Lalana kind of given a a sort of emotional farewell, because I think Klopp remembers that when he first joined, Lalana was a not only one of the first players to get what he was trying to do, but b was 
was quite important in establishing like a culture of professionalism and a culture of, of desire and, and all that. The, the big issue, I think, for Liverpool is that United's best teams did it three years in a row with lower points totals in a more forgiving Premier League. You could lose four or five games and win the title. You now can't. If you lose two, you're probably done. Maybe three. If three years was the maximum under the old forgiving rules, you do wonder whether two years of, as Steve says, like title winning performances, even if you don't get titles for them, whether that is the the, the absolute limit for, for any squad of players. Yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating how Manchester City two seasons ago with their record points all finished 25 points ahead of Liverpool, who were able within the space of 12 months to close that to more or less nothing. And then in another 12 months have accelerated beyond City in terms of points on the board to what will almost certainly be a similar margin by the end of this season. And I think the conversation that we are having today is a little bit unique to the Premier League, whether that's just right now or whether that's across the entire Premier League era. Because if you look at what's going on elsewhere in Europe, that desire of teams to close the gap to the top has not been enough. The last two seasons, Bayern have been able to have ropey starts to the campaign and still go on and win the title. They were nine points behind Borussia Dortmund going into two Christmases ago and were still crowned champions. Napoli and Roma have both landed heavy blows on Juventus without being able to prevent their dominance. Inter started this season like they might be able to do something similar and it doesn't look like it's going to materialise. And still, Barcelona and Real Madrid in Spain are the, are the overwhelming dominant forces. So we do seem to have a situation in this country where that margin is fine enough that it's able to give you that impetus to be successful. Whereas in the other major leagues, the quality of those teams that are dominating is simply so huge that even good recruitment a great young coach like uh, Leipzig have with Nagelsmann and a belief within a squad that you can achieve something still cannot get close to matching the brilliance of the players that the elite teams have at, have at their disposal. That lends the question about how crucial desire is to those teams who have not been caught and whether that is an even greater currency than the the desire which is provided you by having something to try and catch i just want to finish by, by asking rory this question rory given that uh, you've written a lot about liverpool over the course of the last week and th- those those contributing factors to their success how would you weight it uh, if if you're talking about all the the, the analytical side the, the playing staff and the quality, the coaching staff, um, the recruitment, but also that desire. Where, where does desire sit in that little league table? And, and how crucial is it, given that if they did not have it, one assumes that they wouldn't have won the league? In, it's, it's a tricky one. I guess in terms of, of like base causes for their success, bottom. Because I think that what, what's important about Liverpool is that they have built... What I think is now basically the model of a modern major club. I think that, that they are just about sort of like best in show of, of how to run a, an elite football team. I don't think there's another... Bayern are pretty good. City are pretty good. Juve have their moments. Real Madrid and, um, and Barcelona are both dumpster fires. Liverpool are, are kind of... Chelsea are pretty good, to be fair. Chelsea, Chelsea are pretty well run. 
Um, but I think Liverpool do, you know, they're the market leaders in data. They, 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 they're doing things that apply data to the, to on, on pitch stuff, which I think a lot of clubs see as pretty cutting edge. Um, I'm certain they adhere to O-ring theory, which I'm not sure any other team does properly. Um, I don't know if they've ever said they, they adhere to O-ring theory, but if you look at... Could you explain that for us? So O-ring theory is from the Challenger shuttle disaster. It's the idea that so what brought the Challenger down was, um, was something called... It was a fault in the O-ring, which is just a tiny little piece that fits part of the rocket to another part of the rocket. I forget exactly what. But they worked out that that was the cause of the crash. I think it's Challenger. Anyway, some space, some space, space shuttle disaster. So, so the, the O-ring becomes a symbol of the, even the smallest part, that the weakest, your, your whole thing is only as strong as, the weak, as its weakest part. And the way that's applied to analytics is that you upgrade your weakest position. And the best example, so to a lot of people when they say, oh, money, Liverpool do Moneyball, oh, until they sign Van Dijk and Alisson. Van Dijk and Alisson, both Moneyball signings. I remember emailing Billy Bean, uh, who I've always felt as a man with, exceptional taste in podcasts uh, the, <laughs> at the after, very least at the very least um after arsenal signed Urzil, and i i sort of we were just sort of emailing so i'd interviewed him around that time maybe a little bit before and uh, and i remember and i sort of said that it looked like vendor wasn't kind of adhering to his principles because billy's sort of an arsenal well-wisher more than an arsenal fan i think and um and he emailed me back it was really embarrassing he emailed me back and was like, no 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 no, no. Urzil is very much a Moneyball signing because you, if, if you have transformative talent that's available at a high price, you pay that price. That's a core tenet of Moneyball that I hadn't really understood. But anyway, the, um, Alison and Van Dijk are both true Moneyball signings because they are transformative talent available at whatever price is necessary. And you can afford that money. You don't spend it on signing players that, that add a little bit, but not a vast amount for a lot of money. Um, but they are also O-ring signings in the sense that they Liverpool had two very obvious weaknesses. So they went out and and rectified them with the very best players they could find. They are they are analytical signings all day of the week, every day of the week. Um, so I think in terms of putting everything in place, it's much more to do with the data, the decision-making, the, the cutting-edge status, all that stuff. But I think the end result of all of that is to get a squad together that has the desire that can make you achieve your ambitions. And I think so, so it's, it's not so much that I, you can put it in the chain of like, desire is the second most important ingredient. It's more that desire is the natural consequence of all the other stuff that they've done, I think, if that makes sense. So they are the very model of a modern major... Nearly. <laughs> That's where I thought you were going. <laughs> Nearly. Nearly. I'm sure there are plenty of Gilbert and Sullivan fans listening all around the world, and it's not just a weird old English thing. Uh, so, uh, Which would be just as relevant to uh, modern football as professor- professional wrestling, so why not get on to Gilbert and <laughs> yeah. Sullivan? So let's do a good 10 minutes on that, and uh, your emails about that to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, please, please. It's now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is Andy Tales' tale from its playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and live away the details removed. Firstly, can I ask a question? My, my kind of gentle soccer story last time I did one about the, the crowd noise that I get piped into my ears, my audio Viagra. Did, did, did that go down... <laughs> excuse <laughs> me, pun. Did that go down quite well? Did anyone respond to that? Because I felt it was a kind of uh, inconsequential. But to me, it's a really important part of what I do. W- was it something that the, the listeners found interesting? Do we have any emails on, on that topic at all? As, as, as you know, Chinch, my, my other half works in the pharmaceutical industry and her company are very much looking to draw the patent on audio Viagra. So watch this ah. space. It has gone down very well indeed. Yeah, because I was going to tell another kind of 
it's kind of a softy story, but it's very personal to me, and it, it taught me something about myself as well. Um, Steve's mentioned this guy, the, the North Yorkshire farmer and former England manager, Steve McLaren, who actually worked with us at Leeds Against Fulham. Now, you've got to appreciate, I've, I've been doing co-commentary for kind of 10 years or so, and it's always been myself and a commentator. And you sometimes have like this, this third eye, this third voice that would kind of chirp in a couple of times a half. It's, it's a guy, let's like say it's Jamie Redner, but he's in the studio. He's never physically on the gantry with us. So what was quite unusual, I felt that this could kind of two's company, three's a crowd. Steve McLaren joined Gary Weaver and myself on the gantry. So again, with the, with the social distancing, this kind of, you know, we kept apart, but we're together. And I was a little bit unsure. I thought it was a great idea because it gets, again, it's another voice of a very different view of the game, a coach's view of the game. So again, yeah, despite what he did with England, it's still a coach's view of the game. So I, I was just a bit concerned about whether what I was saying would actually, when you've got someone of, of Steve, Steve McLaren's experience of what he'd been both domestically and internationally, this guy clearly does know his stuff, despite what he did with England. And I was always worried, I'm not a coach, I've never been a, a manager, no desire, again, my desire fell away, went into broadcasting, to, to be a So I don't really know, I think I know what coaches think and managers think. But it's always nice to maybe be backed up. And this was like an opportunity. I thought, well, this could go really well or really badly. Because you all know me. I'm quite, I'm, I'm self-deprecating, rightly so. I do worry an awful lot. And I, I do get down when people, even the slightest criticism, I do, I do take it to heart. I'm, I'm, I've, I'm you know, a hard shell, soft center. And I, I, was, I was worried that if I said things in commentary and Steve just basically said, what on earth are you talking about? That's, that's just not the way it is at all. I, I, it could destroy me. It could destroy me. But actually, and someone actually texted me after the games, a few things I mentioned and I threw questions to Steve and he time and again was saying, Andy, you are so right about something tactical or about a player's approach. And it happened two or three times. And actually, even now it makes me smile. And, it, and on the gantry, I was thinking, I must be actually getting this right. And I've done five, 600 games. Yet it takes someone else coming along for the first time on a gantry and actually maybe backing up your point of view when because really you don't get an awful lot of feedback in this business as well so to have actually somebody say you know what you mentioned there about the tactics of what Leeds were doing or what Fulham were doing absolutely right you're seeing it exactly and I thought you know what this shows I can actually maybe do this job it's made me 10 years to get to that point not just the fact that he backed up a lot of what I said Steve McLaren former England manager brought along the finest selection of chocolate biscuits I have ever seen that is above and beyond. Normally, he would be waiting on hand and foot. He'd be expecting the Tunnock's tea cakes. He wouldn't, he wouldn't expect a man of that stature to come along supplying not only his own chocolate biscuits, but offering them up to Gary Weaver and myself and the crew. Extraordinarily, there were Twixes in there. There was oh. four-fingered Kit Kats. Oh. There, were, there were Tunnock's. It was an extraordinary collection. So I, I, just, I wanted just to mention Stephen McLaren, wonderful man, great, great chocolate provider. <laughs> And he really does know a good co-commentator when he works with one. Do you think that he brought the four-fingered Kit Kats because he knows about your experience at Ron Atkinson's house? <laughs> um, Ron only supplied the... There were, there were a lot of them, but there were only two-fingered variety. Right. It was a yeah. mountain. I think I've told this story on the big tray. That Several right times. In the cat suit. But yeah. it, it, they weren't the four-fingered variety. They were, there were lots and lots of, of two-fingers. I like that. I think I've told that story before. Chinch's not quite sure whether he's done that or not. But I'm a little bit concerned about the social distancing uh, regulations that might have been contravened here, Chinch, with him providing no, some weren't. sort of sack of chocolate. 
No, it wasn't a sack of chocolate. He had the chocolate in his hand. It presumably came from his pocket. But we were all two metres. We were all separated. He would put the chocolate down on a table designated the McLaren chocolate table. <laughs> he would then step away a good, probably three metres. He overdid it, with anything. And then I would, like a, like a naughty magpie, would, would come in, not using my beak. I would pick it up with my hands, take it away, and enjoy it with a nice glass of water. So we, we did. We'd, no, no, I didn't. And then I would spray my hands with Dettol just to, to make sure that I am, I am thoroughly clean. Health and safety is, is very, very important. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And don't forget our little du- double request that we made earlier in the show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a five-star review on iTunes as well. Please, please, please. Two things that make this next sentence a little heavy on the repetition. But anyway, please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thanks to Stephen, Andy, Rory, and to you all for listening. We'll be back another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. So we now know that audio Viagra comes in two forms. One is fake crowd noise, a hubbub yes. just piped into your ears. And the other is the Yorkshire drawl of Steve McLaren, but only when he brings a hefty amount of chocolate. No, I didn't say no. The chocolate wasn't, no. The chocolate is just an afterthought, just to show what a lovely guy. But I didn't feel he sound. I can't even, a Yorkshire accent. You're saying, Rory, that you face from North Yorkshire, so you reckon... He shouldn't talk that. I didn't think he did. I didn't think he sounded like a Yorkshireman. He just sounded like a very intelligent man who knows a good co-commentator when he hears one. It, there was just a, it was a point where I was sort of, obviously you, like you'd have said something and I'd have been lost in, in, your, in your words. Your, your, the, just the timbre of your voice is very much my audio Viagra chinch. Mm. And, and then this, this other voice that wasn't Gary Weaver came on and sort of saying, oh, about Sam and Dr. Get. Dr. Get Horses in now. Dr. Get Horses in. Rain setting. Sound like that. <laughs> Who is that? I thought it was Neil Redfern for a while. He was talking about Alexander Mitrovic ploughing a furrow. You thought, oh. that's, that's, that's definitely a Yorkshire fan. Yeah, they only, they, they only come up here in summer. Don't take care of communities, do they? Don't really understand local people. And that's was, naturally what you do. If you're looking for that extra voice, insightful voice, you're going to go for a local Yorkshire farmer to, uh, to stand on the gantry with you. Because he's naturally going to give you insight that... that Mere mortals couldn't bring. Joss, it's Jod's country, isn't it? Jod's country. Happiest sheep in the world. Happiest sheep in the world. You sounded like Neil Warnock now. You, you're confusing him with Neil Warnock. Because Neil Warnock he sounded, sounded like, like Neil that. Warnock. It wasn't Neil Warnock.